from the book of the prophet Obadiah. Book of the prophet Obadiah. You go to Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest, the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses, and yet so important. Book of the prophet Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Eden. We have heard a, a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the great if the great gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They ate thy bread, have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in the day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty man, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. If the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the stranger carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou was as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on them on the day of thy brother, in the day that, that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of the, of the destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that, that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thy own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down all they shall be as though they had not been. 
but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for a stubble, and they shall be kindling them, and devour them. And there shall be not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the, and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captivity of the hosts of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephtha, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is Sarapharad, shall possess the cities of the south, and saviors shall come up unto Zion to judge the mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. From the book of prophet Obadiah, as we read, let's read once again only verse 15 of Obadiah, as it summarizes the theme of the whole book, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thy own head. Christianity seems to be shrinking. Or as we just sang, the righteous seems to be weak and the wicked seems to be strong. And churches seem to be getting empty more and more. And darkness apparently is growing. And sin seems to be going unpunished around us. And it is easy for Christians today to feel discouraged in the midst of this scenario. And when what meets the eye is so opposite to what we believe, what we see so opposite of what we believe to be true, and what we believe that the Lord demands from all humanity... But no other promise help us to correct our perspectives, help us to reevaluate our circumstance than the day of the Lord. And that is precisely the theme of Obadiah. Obadiah is a short book that speaks a lot concerning the day of the Lord. And though short, its profundity speaks tremendous to the times that we live. And although an Old Testament prophet Obadiah speaks of also the future and final day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord that is coming. Obadiah is the first of the writing prophets, and although he lived in the same period as prophet Elijah, Elijah didn't write, so Obadiah was the first of these writing prophets. And he speaks concerning the Edomites, who were in rebellion against Israel, those who were fighting against Israel as, and against Judah, as we read in Second Chronicles 21, describing the revolt of the Edomites and how the Edomites cooperated with the Philistines against Judah. A time of great oppression, a time of suffering for Judah and Israel. The people of Edom and Israel, they were... They were related. They shared a common ancestor. And maybe you remember, children, who that common ancestor was, Isaac, right? We remember how 
Isaac gave birth to these two brothers, uh, Jacob and Esau, in Genesis 25 to 27. And these two brothers will later then give birth to these two nations, Edom from Esau and Israel from Jacob. And although they share the common ancestor, these two nations took two very different paths. And they ended up in rebellion and fighting against each, each other. Eden, after all, behaved just like the foreign nations around them. Instead of behaving like one of the promised children of Jacob, instead of behaving like one of the promised children of Isaac, it behaved just like the foreign nations that were surrounding them. And not only denied Israel to pass through Eden, but also rebelled against Israel, sided with the pagan nations to attack Israel, as we read in the book of Numbers. And this hostility against the people of God receives now in Obadiah a sentence, receives now a promise of judgment that one day the Lord will bring it to an end. The day of the Lord over Edom. It speaks greatly about also the final and great day of the Lord. Not only a sentence over Eden, but a sentence over all evil and wickedness in the world. Is the 21st century the time of the downfall of Christianity? Is it the time that we will see wickedness progressing so much until Christianity will be no more? By no means. The promise that we have here is that that's not going to be the case. That the gates of hell cannot prevent the advance of the Lord's church. And even though we don't see happening, we can rest that nothing can frustrate the Lord's decrees. The brevity of the day of the Lord is central for the book of Obadiah. And it helps us to understand this theme. This helps us to understand how the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is coming. And to meditate in this book, we will do so under two headings. First, the judgment of the evildoers. And second, the deliverance of God's people. And although the enemies of God seem to prosper, it is only temporary. The book of Obadiah shows us that Edom and all enemies of God will not escape judgment. And he will bring might deliverance to his people. So let us see first the judgment that the Lord brings over the evildoers. Obadiah speaks of a message of destruction, not only over Edom, but to all those who oppose God's kingdom, all those who sided with Edom, all the pagan nations around, and even Edom, were going to be brought down. The Lord was going to bring a mighty judgment over them. And the day of the Lord came against Edom. This was a historical event that happened in the past. Eden was destroyed. Eden is no more. Nothing was left. But although the day of the Lord over Eden already came, that day of the Lord was typical, was a type of the great and final day of the Lord, which will come over all the nations. We can learn four things about the judgment of the evildoers in the day of the Lord, in the final day of the Lord, from this day of the Lord that we read in Obadiah about Eden. First, the assurance of judgment. We already read in the opening of the book 
that this judgment is promised. This judgment is secure. It will come. First of all, the prophet is already making clear in the opening of the book that he is speaking the very words of God. Thus says the Lord, the infallible word of God. Thus says the Lord. What he's saying here is going to become true because it's the very words of God. The same word of God who created the universe as we meditated this morning is the same word of God that is promising that judgment will come not only over Edom, but over all wickedness. They will be destroyed. God is promising this. And just as Obadiah already opens with the promise of the final judgment, the Bible itself also opens with a promise of the final judgment. Genesis 3.15. We have the promise. We have the promise that the seed of the serpent will not prevail over the seed of the women. We have the promise that the head crusher, Christ, will come and will smash the head of the serpent. So just as this book opens with the promise of deliverance and judgment, the Bible opens with the same thing. We don't need to read until Revelation to finally discover that, yes, the church will, will be made free at the end. Or, yes, we will escape at the very end. No, already at the opening, the Lord gave us assurance, gave us the promise that he will bring judgment and he will deliver his people. Verse 15 says that, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, upon all nations. One way or the other, the day of the Lord is near, either bringing fierce judgment as it was for Eden, or bringing mighty deliverance as it was for Israel. But the day, the day of the Lord is near upon all. No one will escape the great day of the Lord. And we are sure that this final day will bring either complete salvation or complete destruction. And it's not by coincidence that Edom, this name, is a very similar name to Adam, to humanity. You know, in the Hebrew language, they didn't have vowels. So the two names are, are similar. And Edom, the judgment that comes over Eden, is also a type of the judgment that comes over all humanity. You see how the Lord is making Edom an illustration of what will happen at the end of time. At the great day of the Lord. Whether the nations recognize it or, or not, God's rule is absolute. God's rule is supreme, and He's going to judge all. Remember one day that Dr. Barrett preached a sermon in 2 Kings 21 on the evil reign of King Manasseh. You remember that one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. And the title of his sermon was How Far is too far. How far is too far. Though Manasseh repented at the end of his life, at the very end, it was too far for Israel. Although Manasseh repented, Israel had went too far. Israel had crossed the line. Israel, the Israelites were living just as the pagan nations around them, in idolatry, in rebellion to the Lord, not keeping his law. Israel went too far. And even though Manasseh repented, the Lord brought judgment over Israel. The Lord brought the exile to them. And the question is, how far is too far? How far is too far for a nation? How far is too far for us? 
or for the nation that we live, how can we know how far is too far? How can we know when the cup of wrath of the Lord is full? We don't know. We don't know when the last drop will fall into his cup and he will bring this great and final day. We don't know when the mighty judgment will come. We don't know what will be the last sin that the Lord will tolerate. Although we don't know how far is too far, we know for sure that judgment will come, that he will bring justice to all the wickedness. We know that one day he will bring judgment against evil, all the evil that exists. We know that he will bring an end to all the weakness that we see. As prophet Joel says in Joel chapter 1, verse 15, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as destruction from the Almighty shall it come. We don't know when, we don't know what time, we don't know when it, it will come, but we know for sure it will. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is at hand. We have the promise that the day is coming. But a second thing that we see from Obadiah about this great judgment is how pride precedes judgment. We see from the example of Edom how pride leads to judgment, how pride precedes judgment. Verses 2 to 4. We see the terrible danger of pride. The reality is that all of us are like Edom, small, insignificant, and yet filled with pride. Verse 3 says, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. And how often, this is our reality as well, our pride deceives us. We become so proud that we become blind, that we blind ourselves by our pride. There is a dreadful danger to think that one can escape from the Lord, that one can escape from His judgment or find refuge in anything else but Himself. The same pride that Edom entered. Edom thought that they were mighty, that they could escape by their mighty men, by their wisdom, by their knowledge. They became so proud that they forgot the promises, that they forgot the Lord of their ancestors. They forgot the Lord of their parents. They forgot the Lord of Isaac. And they became so proud that they became blind. But our heart is prone to be like Edom, to seek earthly refuges, to seek other things as if other things could give us refuge. But we see the, the same reality of Psalm 2, the only reality that the only place that we can find refuge is in Him and from Him. That is the promise of Psalm 2 that He will bring judgment and yet He is the only place of refuge. There is no other place of refuge but in Him but in himself. As Proverbs says, pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall. If we fill our hearts with ourselves and if we seek refuge in ourselves or in anything else but him, we can, the result can only be destruction, can only be fall as it was for Edom. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, the opposite is true. Just like pride precedes the fall, humility precedes glory. 
a heart that is humble before the Lord, a heart that is filled with humility, that comes seeking the Lord with humble submission to Him, also precedes grace. The opposite is true. As we see, all, all those kings were filled with pride and fell, and the Lord brought great judgment upon them. We also see how humility precedes great deliverance. As it was for Israel, it also can be for us if we seek the Lord in humility. A third thing that we see about this great judgment is that judgment will bring complete destruction. Verses 5 to 9. Verse 5 tells us how there will be nothing left. There will be nothing left. Complete destruction, complete desolation. All will be burned down to the ground. There will, not, there will be nothing remaining. Even a thief would be merciful to leave something behind. Or even someone who was gathering grapes would leave something behind. But not this final judgment. Not the mighty judgment of the Lord. No, this will be, bring complete destruction. There will be no allies to defend us, as there, there were no allies to defend Edom. Verse 7. All the men of thy covenant. The word here can be understood as covenant. All the, those allies, all those who were friends, who were close, who had a, a sign agreement between them. Yet, no one could bring deliverance. All those allies that Edom had on that day abandoned them. In the same way, there will be no allies to defend us on the final day of the Lord. They come to the borders, that is, they sent people who came to the borders, but yet didn't help. On the contrary, instead of helping Edom, we read that they laid a wound under thee. That is, they, they prepared traps to Edom. They betrayed Edom. See, on that day, it's not going to be any help from friends or anyone else. On the contrary, these people is going to betray as they betrayed Edom. And the power of this world will be put to shame. Verses 8 and 9, we read how the wise men shall be destroyed, and the mighty men shall be dismayed. You see, no force in this world will be capable to resist. Mighty and wisdom are things that we associate with power and knowledge, right? Things that we often pursue, things that we often desire, things that we often put our hearts in, things that we often labor to get, power and knowledge. How often, how often these things are the things that we seek refuge as well. Things that we hope that can protect us. Things that we, we hope that can bring us comfort and deliverance. But we see how knowledge and power are not going to be of any help on that day. Knowledge and power are things that our world boasts about, right? They boast about their power, their position of authority. They boast about all their knowledge or the knowledge that they think they have. And as reform, sometimes we can be tempted to do the same thing. We can be tempted to boast of our theological knowledge, of our head knowledge, as if our theological precision could save us on that day. There is no place of refuge but Him. Nothing else can save us. Only Christ can. On that day, on the great day of the Lord... Power and knowledge is not going to be enough. Even knowledge of God Himself is not going to be enough. 
only Christ save. Only having Him as our personal Savior saves. That's the reality. That's the reality of the mighty judgment that will come. That there is only refuge in Him and from Him. But a fourth thing that we see is that judgment won't be without a reason. Judgment won't be, will not be without reasons. But we read of many reasons. Verses 10 to 14. The terrible violence and betrayed, betrayal that Eden committed against Israel. Seeking first it, its own interest above everything else, everyone else. Eden betrayed Israel first, not letting Israel cross Edom, but afterwards, Edom also betrayed Israel, siding with its enemies to fight against Israel. And the text gives a very vivid image of the treason that is committed when one turns away from the Lord and aligns with the world, a real mockery of God's name. Edom was rejoicing, rejoicing over Israel's calamity. And see the list of sins that, is, that are given about Edom. Verse 10, we have slaughter, violence. Verse 11, we read that they were standing aside. That, that is, they were there when Israel was being destroyed. They were there when Israel was being attacked by the foreign nations, but they did nothing. And actually, they, they sided with the bad guys. They, they were cheering for the bad guys as Israel was being destroyed. So verse 11 still say how they were being like one of the strangers and foreigners. Verse 12, they were gloating. That is, they were rejoicing over the misfortune of another, in that case, Israel. They were rejoicing in face of ruin. They were boasting in a time of distress. Verse 13, entering the gate of my people. See, they, they should not enter into Israel because they were not entering to help Israel, but they were entering to to loot Israel. They were entering to attack Israel, to, to spoil over Israel. And still in verse 13, we see how they were looting. Then verse 14, we see how they were cutting off fugitives. That is, they were blocking the survivors. Those who were trying to escape from Israel, they, they were blocking, they were being on the way of their route to escape. And they were handing over the survivors to be killed. See how Edom committed every crime possible. They became so alike, the foreign nations, that they were going to be treated just like them. They were going to be judged just as one of those pagan nations. Notice how particularly how many of these are expressed in the negative. Thou shouldest not have looked. Thou shouldest not have entered, verse 13. Neither shouldest thou have stood, verse 14. Emphasizing God's warning not to do these things. Emphasizing how God had warned them, how they should have known this, how they had the law, but yet they were broken it. They were siding with Israel's enemies. In the same way, we have the repetition of this expression. In the day of their destruction, or in the day of their calamity, in the day of distress, they, you see the doom of Israel, the calamity of Israel, was the reason why Edom was rejoicing. Why Edom, Edom was celebrating was precisely the calamity, the distress of God's people. 
And in, in civil law, there is something called aggravating, aggra uh, aggravation, in which some circumstances or practice can make the problem or offense worse, which may increase the guilt of the one who, who broke the law. And well, Edom committed all possible aggravating things. But it had also all the aggravating practice. Edom shared bloodline with Israel. That is, they were connected by a family covenant. Edom not only helped Israel, but it sided with the transgressors. That is, they, they, they not only refused to help Israel, but they also sided with the transgressors to invade and attack Israel. And third, they mocked the suffering of Israel. Edom had all these aggravating nuances to its case. It was mocking Israel. It was neglecting the covenant. It was siding with the transgressors. And we can think, oh, how wicked these people from Eden were, how evil these Edomites were, how nasty they were. It is easy to judge Eden. But the reality is that we can do the same thing. The reality is that, in fact, our sins before God, before our holy God, mean the same thing. We have exactly the same aggravating nuances as well. We share more than a bloodline. God is our creator. He is the creator of the universe. We own obedience to Him. So when we broke His law, we have this aggravating that we are taking Him away from His throne and placing ourselves on the throne. We also have the aggravation that our sin is not simply not doing God's will, but is actually siding with the enemy to break His law, to damage His kingdom. Our sins mock the Creator and mock the sufferings of Christ to buy us back. All these aggravations, we have them all. When we sin, we have committed not just a crime, but we have all the aggravations. We are mocking Him. Mock the God who created us. Mock the Christ who, who brought us back. We are siding with the enemy. Siding with the enemy to break His chains, to mock Him. The lure of sin is often to say that, Oh, but I'm not harming anyone else. This thing that I'm committing is not harming anyone else. And this is how, how many times it starts. This is how many times the sin lures us. And we fall more and more entangled with our sin. I'm not, I'm not doing this to anyone else. It's not harming anyone else. No one else knows. And this way we sin against our Creator. We sin against our Redeemer. We mock Him. We mock Him and we side with the enemies that are doing the very same things. A danger that we can incur if we pursue our own interests, that is, if we pursue glory to ourselves or if we pursue what is good only for us. Or as the world says, love yourself, pursue your heart. Empty words. These are Empty words that means nothing. Only means to forsake the Lord and align with God's enemies. Be careful. Be careful with those sins that only you can see. That no one else knows but, uh, but you. 
those sins that you commit behind closed doors, or things that you see on your phone, or things that you say or thought about saying in your heart, things that no one else knows but you. Be careful, for every sin is grievous before the Lord. Mortify them, brothers, even if only you know, even if no one else knows. You must know that God knows. He knows, and it's grievous before His sight. Therefore, the judgments that comes upon them, upon Eden, and upon all evil, is not undeserved, but is fitted to their crimes. And that is, it matches the crime. The punishment matches the crime. And this is what is called poetic justice. We can read in the rest of verse 15. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thy own head. It's poetic justice or lax talionis, that is an eye for an eye, is how punishment will come. And we see there is a long list of the sins that Eden committed and also a list of how the Lord will bring judgment over them. We read in verses 11 and 12 that they commit treachery against Judah. And we read in verse 7 that treachery of its confederates. That is, he will, betrayed, he will be betrayed as well. They robbed Judah, verse 13. Verse 5 and 6, they will be robbed. They committed violence against Judah, verse 11. They will perish by sword. So violence will be committed against them, verse 9. They sought Judah's destruction, verse 12 to 14. They will be utterly destroyed, verse 10 and 18. They sought to dis dispossess Judah. They will be possessed, verse 19. So poetic justice, an eye for an eye. The sin comes with equivalent punishment. God is going to hold it on Edom accountable. And they were going to receive what they deserve. Sin by sin. And what a fearful thing is to receive what we deserve, isn't it? What a fearful thing is to receive what we reserve. To receive what we deserve for every sin that we committed. Even those sins that no one else knows. What a fearful thing would it be to receive that that we deserve. It's a dreadful message to receive according to what we have done. Our only hope is not to receive according to what we have done, but to receive according to what Christ has done. There can be no other hope. We don't come before God saying, Oh God, I want to receive what I deserve. Give me what is mine, Lord. Give what I deserve. What a fearful thing. What a fearful thing to come on that day, on the day of the Lord, and the only thing that we can receive is what we deserve. For we fall short of the glory of God. Our only hope is to receive not what we deserve, but what Christ deserves, what He deserves, what He has accomplished. Remember that only one day in history, only one day in the entire history, evil was done to someone that didn't deserve. Only one day in history, someone has received an evil that he didn't deserve. And that day was in the cross of Christ. 
Only he didn't deserve. Only he was the perfect lamb. Only he was without sin, without transgression. Only he didn't deserve. But yet, as a lamb, silence, he went to be slaughtered. He went peacefully to be slaughtered. He received what he didn't deserve so that we could receive what we didn't deserve also. As, so that we could receive what he deserves. Evil seems to be going unpunished. The cross of Christ is the greatest reminder. The greatest reminder that he, there will be a judgment. If God punished his own son on that cross... If God punished His own Son, displaying His wrath, displaying that He is just, He will bring judgment over the, over the heathens. If He punished His own Son, His only begotten Son, He will judge every sin. He will not let any sin go unpunished. Sin will be punished either in ourselves or in Christ either upon ourselves, either in complete destruction in ourselves, or they were punished in Christ on that cross. But either way, sins will be punished. On the cross, Christ was treated as a homicide. He was treated as a slander, as a blasphemer, as a homicide, as a drunk, idolater, abuser, a liar, a killer, name every sin. On that cross... Christ was paying the price. He was paying the price for sin. He was paying the price for evil. On the cross, the price of sin was paid, and the holiness of God was vindicated. On the cross, it's also a display that He is just. See how He is just. See the price to pay for sins. The cross is a display. A sin must be paid, and the price is blood. The cross becomes a display of the horror of our sins and also of the justice of God. His holiness is vindicated. Sin must be atoned. The dark background of divine judgment makes the light of grace shine even brighter. Nothing else could atone for our sins but the sacrifice of Christ. So all these judgment, all these fierce judgment, bring us also to the deliverance of God's people. Our second point, the message that the, the day of the Lord will bring restoration to God's people. Just as the day of the Lord is a great warning, it is also a great assurance to God's people. First we see deliverance through judgment, verses eight, 17 and 18. The delay of the Lord restore, restores Mount Zion as his holy hill. And Israel shall possess again this holy hill. For God's people, the day of the Lord means to inherit the kingdom. Not an earthly temporal kingdom, not anything in this world, but the heavenly Jerusalem. The day of the Lord for God's people means restoration. Means to inherit what was promised heavenly Jerusalem. But not only that, but we also read here how in the day of the Lord, God's people will participate on that judgment. We see in verse 18 how Jacob will be the fire that will destroy the house of Esau. 
We, we don't know exactly how this is going to look like, but we know that the Bible promises this, how this is going to happen. Witnesses will be called, and the saints will, be, will help to judge. We read that in 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 20, verse 4. You see how all the persecution that happens, all the persecution, all the suffering that happens, that Christianity faces, the blood of the martyrs that was shed, which is, was spilled for the sake of the gospel, on that day, on the great day of the Lord, it will be avenged. On the day of the Lord, all the persecution, all the persecution that happened in history will pay the price. Revelation 20 verse 4 gives this picture of those who were beheaded for the gospel. Those who, who lost their heads for the sake of the gospel are now called before the throne to judge. They are called to judge with the judge himself, called to judge alongside with Christ, to bring judgment. The deliverance of God's people is, first of all, through judgment. Again, we don't know how this is going to happen. We don't know exactly how this is going to look like, but we have the promise that judgment will come, that the suffering that God's people face will not go unpunished. One day, one day there will be judgment. We have also the promise in verse 19 and 20 that deliverance will be through the universal kingdom, the universal kingdom that will be established. Though Israel experienced times of peace many times, though Israel experienced a large kingdom through Solomon, for instance, it never experienced anything like this. Nothing can be compared to the final kingdom of God, to the universal kingdom of God, to the time of peace that will come, the universal kingdom overreaching the ends of the earth, far greater than Israel never was a far greater glory than Israel never had. It is important to realize that all nations are already given to Christ. You see, all nations are already given to Him, all belongs to Him already, even though we don't experience, we don't experience the fullness of His kingship yet. We don't experience the fullness of His kingdom being established. He already belongs to Him even though we don't see fully yet. It's already, but not yet. You see, this is a great promise for us. For there will not be enemies in heaven. Heaven will not, there will not be a fight in heaven. When Israel entered the promised land, they fought many wars, they fought many battles, but not in heaven. When we enter the promised Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, War will be no more. There won't be enemies in heaven. There won't be persecutions in heaven. There will not be mockers in heaven. There will be no death in heaven. There will be no sin in heaven. All these things, all these things are already conquered, are already conquered by Christ. But we still fight against them. We, don't ex we have not experienced the fullness of the deliverance yet. But one day, one day, all God's people will experience the fullness of being completely de delivered, of resting in Him, in the kingdom of God. Have patience, dear Christian. 
although all these things are already conquered, this is not heaven yet. We are not there yet. So have patience, for one day we'll taste the fullness of this reality. And we have also the assurance of deliverance. Verse 21 says that all and saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge Mount, the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. This last verse is not saying that the kingdom is not the Lord's already, and one day it will be. No, it's saying that the kingdom is already the Lord's, and it will continue being the Lord's forever and ever. The, as it is now, the kingdom shall be the Lord's forever and ever. It's giving us the certainty that the kingdom will remain the Lord's forever. All the kings and judges, all the smaller deliverers who were used, all the small, smaller saviors with small s, were but a type of the final and great Savior with capital S, of Jesus Christ, the Savior of God's church. All these smaller saviors, they brought deliverance to Israel, that's true. Just like in the book of Judges, many saviors who brought deliverance to Israel, but just for a time, just for a small time, just for a short time. But the final Savior, Jesus Christ, He brings the final deliverance. He accomplishes the ultimate and eternal deliverance of His people. All these saviors were a type of the final Savior, Jesus Christ, who brings the final deliverance. And this is a great application for us to bring such a great assurance for God's people that He will establish His kingdom completely. All those who suffer, all those who are under heavy persecution, all those who are mocked, all those who suffer for so many things, one day, one day will be free from that. Those who are mocked or betrayed for carrying God's word, one day will enjoy the complete blessings of His kingdom. We have the assurance of deliverance. This is what motivates us to pray and to claim to the Lord, Oh Lord, may Thy kingdom come. This is why we long so much for His kingdom. This is why we long so much for the coming of His kingdom. We long for the day that evil will be no more. We long for the day that His church will be completely delivered from evil. How often we don't pray these words? How often we neglect these words? Or we pray them so lightly? Perhaps it's because we take for granted the freedom that we have. Perhaps it's because we take for granted the freedom that we have to carry our Bibles with us, to open our Bibles in public. We take for granted the times of peace that we live. But we don't realize, we don't realize how much greater will be when His kingdom fully comes. But we know, even though we don't experience this heavy persecution nowadays, one way or the other, we experience the consequence of evil. We experience the pain of diseases. We experience the, we experience the pain by the evil committed by others. We experience the pain that abortion causes. We experience the pain of the mockery that Christianity faces. We experience the pain of our own indwelling sin. 
We experience the pain, the tragedy of death, the separation that death means. Even though we don't experience the heavy persecution, we know, we know we experience this, this terrible things that evil causes. But one day, will be no more. One day, evil will be no more. This is why we pray, O oh Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done and thy kingdom come, Lord. For we long for the day that evil will be no more. And I would like to conclude with a story. As we face persecution of different kinds, but we do face them, this story may help us to reevaluate our priorities, to see how even when facing trials, tribulation, Christianity has a unique comfort that no other religion has. Christianity is a unique religion because it has a unique Savior and a unique comfort, a unique promise. MacArthur told a story at one of his conferences about a young girl from a Muslim country and a Muslim family who was attending the Master's College. She had come to faith in Christ by listening to a broadcast, uh, sermons which were broadcasted. She read by a man in her own language, and she was from a Muslim family in a Muslim country, but she came to faith by listening to this sermon. Her father was a mid-level officer in government, so in a Muslim country, so I hope you know what that means, the reality that that means. And he loved his daughter so much that he allowed her to go to pursue her dream of going to the master's college in California. So she majored in computers and technology because her country would not allow her to study the Bible or anything that was related to Christianity. But along with her studies in computers, she began to study Greek, Hebrew, and related languages because she wanted to translate the scriptures into the language of her people. And when finally she flew home, she was met at the airport by secret service agents of her country who interrogated her for two hours, then released her. But when she got home, home, her dad was not there, but her uncle was there waiting for her. And he asked her, Are you a Christian? And she said, Yes, I am. He said, You have shamed our family, and you will pay the price. He picked up a chair and broke it over her back, then took a leg of the chair which fall off and began beating her to death. And at the final moment, when she feared for her life, her father finally walked in and rescued her. He drove her to the airport, put her on a plane, and told her never to come back. And then she arrived in California, and a few days later, she met with Joe MacArthur. This was a 17 to 8-year-old girl, young girl, who came to faith in Christ and faced all these. And she, she met with MacArthur, Joe MacArthur, and he asked the young girl, what were you thinking as your uncle was beating you to death? And she responded, I was thinking that this man has a religion that he would kill for, but I have a Savior that I would die for. 
is see the reality of Christianity. They might have a, have a religion that they would kill for. But, oh, brothers, we have a Savior who is worth dying for. This is what sets apart Christianity from any religion in the entire world. This is the comfort that only Christianity can provide. A comfort that even when facing death, when facing the fear of death, when facing the dark valleys of our lives, oh, we have a religion that is worth dying for. We have a Savior that we would die for. This one young woman knew so much of the glory of God's grace the power of the Savior, the sovereignty of God, that she was willing to lay her own life for her Savior. Although the enemies of God seem to prosper nowadays, it is only temporary. It is only for a time. The day of the Lord is near. If you are suffering, if you are here today and you are suffering for so many different causes caused by evil in the world. Remember that the day of the Lord will bring deliverance to His people. For the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is at hand. And if you don't have Jesus as your Savior yet, cry out for Him. Cry unto Him. For there there will be a great judgment coming. A great judgment upon all the nations, upon everyone and anyone. Cry unto Him. There is only salvation in Him. Cry unto Him. And if the time ever come, that we are pressed to deny Christ, that we are persecuted in such a great way, that like that young girl, we are pressed to deny Him, to deny our faith. Lord, I pray to the Lord that we will we'll take the bullet. We'll take the bullet, but we'll not deny Him. We will not deny the Savior that we will have. And even in the danger of losing our lives, we won't deny our Savior. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathens. And as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Our only hope is not to receive according to what we have done, but to receive according to what Christ has done. To receive according to what our Savior has done. The deliverance that He has brought. So come to Him. Cry out to our Lord and Savior. Cry out to Him and come to Him. And even if we face tribulations of different kinds. Know that the day of the Lord is near upon all. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we come before Thee, Lord, knowing that the day of the Lord is near upon all. O oh Lord, we recognize the gravity of coming on that day not knowing Thee, Lord, of coming on the great day of judgment and coming before Thy mercy seat, Lord, and coming before Thy throne and hearing those terrible words, Lord, depart from me, ye curse, for I never knew thee. Oh, Lord, we don't want to hear those words, Lord. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us, Lord. For our sins, we would deserve that, Lord. 
But oh Lord, because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has done, what, what he has accomplished, we can be united to thee. He has paid a price, Lord. Oh Lord, how we long for that day. How we long for the great day of the Lord. How we long to hear the words, Lord, come unto me, good and faithful servant. Oh, Lord, what a blessed words that will be for all of thy people. So, oh, Lord, for those who are here today and have not yet bowed before Jesus, have mercy on them, Lord, for great judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is near and complete destruction will come upon all evil. And, oh, Lord, for all those who have already tasted of this reality, who have already bent the knee before Thee, prepare us, Lord, to face any tribulation that comes. Prepare us to face persecution if it ever comes, and to proclaim with boldness, to proclaim with boldness Thy name, Thy word, and Thy truth, Lord. And, oh, Lord, may Thy kingdom come, for we long to meet with our Savior and to worship Him forever and ever at Thy holy hill. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen.